0: From one islander to another, Isle of Wight Radio proudly presents John Hannam meets. Delighted to welcome to John Hannam meets. Uh, first time since nineteen ninety one, I think. David, Icke. Nice to see you, David. Thank you, John. Um, we 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 must meet more regularly, mustn't we? Yes. <laughs> European tour you're on the eve almost of a European tour yeah new book everything you need to know but have never been told Life's exciting for you. When we first met you were a top quality TV presenter popular handsome still are actually solid career supreme professional Not quite enough for you because since 1991 you've changed a lot. Haven't you it's been exciting for you really?
1: Yeah, I've changed a lot um, Thank goodness because if I'd have still been um, saying hello, good evening, and welcome on the BBC, uh, I think I'd have taken a pill by now, because <laughs> uh, by, uh, by the time I left the BBC, in fact, the BBC, to be fair, left me. I think they were under pressure because I was the national spokesman for the British Green Party at the time, and the Green Party was starting to do very well then, and um, I think they were under pressure politically to um, stop me having a profile. On the BBC, because apparently, um, as it was in those days, Ian Rush scored a hat trick, and the economic system is destroying the world, were incompatible. <laughs> so, but anyway, it did me a favour because I was pushed before I jumped. Really, because um, I uh, I'd had enough. I mean, I found it a very vacuous world. They used to say about the BBC, they get so confused, they stab each other in the chest, you know, and. Um, I was glad to leave, but, uh, you know, things did change rather dramatically, ultimately in a very good way. I travel around the world all the time. Um, I talk to large numbers of people in each place. uh, And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a dramatic about turn from... You know what was happening before so I, I'm in a good space and very happy with what is happening
0: over 20 books numerous DVDs lectured in 25 countries well,
1: it's ne- well I've actually been to nearly 60 now. have you or well, just over 60
0: you've sold 140,000 books at least perhaps a few more now you? oh I
1: have no idea how many how many books because um, uh, I don't keep count I leave that to to others and you know things have, have changed from time to time in terms of who's been publishing them so you you have no way of knowing the real number. But, you know, I I, um, I have a barometer, John, which is basically how many people stop you in the street. And it's getting just incredible now. Um, You know, when I was filming in London uh, last week, you know, people from every walk of life. There was a a Muslim mother and her two daughters. There was a guy who who seemed to be from Indian descent. And there was a... A lady who drove a car from the other side of the road to where i was walking and three or four cab drivers stopped their cabs and came running down the street and you know when you're stopped in the street in sydney and new york and los angeles and and um, the balkans <laughs> and etc uh, you know that what you what you're doing is getting out there because you see uh, as you see i live in a a little flat which I love um lived here since 2001. I've got a little office You couldn't swing a cat in where I, I write the books and I do the videos and and um, do all the research um, But it's only when you get out there that you you it really hits you how far this has gone now and it's uh, it's a Testament of of what happens if you persist When everyone's telling you what you're trying to do is impossible. When we first met in 85, we talked about railways on the Isle of Wight. I still talk about railways. Look around the room, John.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) All these pictures of Isle of Wight steam railways. There was no
0: YouTube and no website in those days. So now you've got half a million YouTube subscribers. And God, it goes on, doesn't it? Well,
1: it's just incredible, isn't it? I mean, you know, we both come from a generation. I think it's a very important thing. From a generation that has a radar and a filter that can see how it used to be, and how it is now, and how extraordinarily quickly it has changed. You know, when I started out doing what I do now, nearly 30 years ago, your means of publicity for events was getting people to hand out leaflets in the street. You know, now you post something on the internet and it can go to ultimately millions of people. So it's, um, things have changed dramatically, not all for the good, by the way, a lot of them not for the good. But um, it, it's been an incredible lifetime. Same, same kind of uh, with you. Um, the changes that have taken place. I was born in 1952 in Leicester um, on a uh, big working class council estate. And when I look at the, what the world was like then to now, it, it is extraordinary. It's, like, uh, it's just like another dimension, really. Do you have an inside or outside toilet in the early days? I certainly oh, had an outside toilet. No. I was born in 1952, and we lived in a house in Lead Street in Leicester, which was just off Wharf Street. You get the picture. Um, yes. <laughs> and that did have an outside toilet. Yeah, those, they, that one did. But the, there was a, um, a, a, a new council estate built in the 1950s for the you know, people who would come back from the war, and we got at one of those. My brother still lives in the same house, full enough. Um, I, I was up there a little while ago and uh that did have an inside toilet because of the nature of where it was built and when it was built it was on the edge of leicester and um, i used to love going out on my bike into the into the countryside and uh, watching steam trains and stuff that was my childhood steam trains and football
0: you were quite shy as a kid you didn't like sort of meeting people not a good talker failed your 11 plus you haven't done too bad have you (laughs)
1: <laughs> well fully enough now i mean it's one of one of the things i talk at length about and um um i, I i've written about this in in the new book in one part of it um I, I you know i think the education system is a disgrace um i think it's a disgrace for many reasons um and you know i i left school at 15 to play football uh well you could leave at 15 then never took a major exam in my life Failed the 11 plus which is great because if I'd have passed it I'd have gone to a school which didn't play football or any rugby and I've written over 20 books and you know I've done talks for years and years that have gone on all day for 10 hours without a script, right? Yeah, how'd you do that? by the way, well well because um, Intelligence and this is what I would say to every young person listening intelligence Um, Is something you have or you can develop it's not something you uh, have to go to school to be taught in fact True intelligence is suppressed at school uh, because questioning is suppressed having your own opinion is suppressed and funny enough um, one of the investors in this film that's about my life that's being made renegade is a man who I met him actually the other day in London a man who uh, also left school without any exams um, and um, uh, started off, um, you know, with basically nothing. And he's now living in Monte Carlo worth 200 million pounds. And he actually has produced a book about his life in which he says the same thing. You know, a university degree is basically worthless as a measure of intelligence it's a measure of memory, a measure of taking down and accepting the official story of everything and repeating it on an exam paper. Um, and some of the most intelligent people I've met were not very good at school. I mean I'd sussed it quite early when I went to school. I mean for, actually funny enough on my first day I, I went to school on my first day to infant school and at lunchtime, I Thought well, I don't like this and I ran home and I said to my mother. Oh, I'm not going back. It's horrible Let's go down the shops like we always do, you know <laughs> But instead what do they do John? They, they they I mean look look at this summer we've had and these kids have been sitting in in school Having an authority figure giving them the curriculum. I mean that the the teachers are in prison as well they they have to give the curriculum they're told to give or else and while they could be out climbing trees and expressing themselves and and, and, and using their imagination. They're sitting at a desk, being told to um, consider what X means in algebra. I mean, what the hell is all that about? I don't care what X means, funnily enough. And I've never had to know what X means throughout my life. And I tell you a story, we're filming at my uh, house where I was brought up in Leicester, where my brother lives uh, with his film crew a a few months ago. And it's very little change from when I grew up. Um, All the houses are still the same. And there's an area, there's a green area just in front of some of the houses where I spent most of my childhood playing football. It kind of brings it home to you, you know, how time passes, because one of the one of the goalposts was um, a newly planted uh, sapling with a a big um, piece of wood that it was kind of taped to to keep it going. That was one of the goalposts and now it's a big bloody tree <laughs> But I'm leading somewhere with this and on the other side of the road was this spinny We used to call it, which is just a load of trees going, going down between two roads and when I went back and It was a Saturday no school and The houses are still the same houses. They're still um, uh, You know family houses with children and I stood that was there about two or two three hours, maybe And in that period there was one thing missing on that green and in that spinny children Empty when I was a kid it was kids everywhere. They weren't playing football. They were playing hopscotch They were climbing trees and and I saw one child While I was there and it was a little boy who looked behind the curtain to see what was happening when we were filming on that piece of green I talked about and this is, you know, I think it's real sad the, the way uh, that, that children are isolated increasingly more than ever in boxes. And, you know, when you're isolated in boxes, the box can start to form around your head, around your mind. And I think it's very sad. I, I, I wouldn't change. If someone could say, well, you know, you can be, you can be 15 again now. No, thank you.
0: I'm Vanilla Fielding. And whenever I can, I listen to John Hannum meets. You were a footballer, you earned about 30 quid a week. I know you retired through injury, but. Do they get too much these days, do you think? Do they get, you know?
1: Oh, it's crazy, madness. Yeah. But I mean, you see, you look at the way the world's gone. I used to write an article once a week for a football website years ago called Football365, I think it was called. And the theme of the the article every week was, was football as a metaphor for life. And it is, um, you know, sport in general, really. I mean, you know, you know, you know, you go through life, you go through emotional ups and downs and stuff. But, you know, in life, those emotional ups and downs, they can be days apart or weeks apart or months apart. In a football game, there can be minutes apart or seconds apart. And uh, but that's that's the difference. It's kind of it's a, a focused expression of life. And the way football has gone is the way the world's gone. You know, you now you now have um, uh, Something like six seven eight people Who have the same wealth as the poorest half of the world's population? And you see in football this this same kind of theme this same structure first of all You've got 11 players on the pitch at any one point Or actually doing it and then you've got tens of thousands watching them doing it Which is what tends to happen with the uh, the people that run the world And you've got the players earning just breathtaking amounts of money for frankly, you know, it's kind of entertaining if you like that sort of thing. But it's still guys kicking a bag of wind about and trying to get it into a bloody onion bag, a net. And they earn this phenomenal money while people are stripping and going without lots of them to actually buy the ticket at a time when football clubs get so much from television that the the um, the ticket price is, is really negligible to their income. They could bring it down, but they don't. Why? Because the owners of the clubs want to squeeze every last penny out of the fans. And that's what happens in life in general. You've got the few squeezing the the, the last penny out of the, the population and something else, of course, is happening in football, and that is as is happening again with radio stations, with newspapers, with the media in general, and that is that um, billionaires, often from another another country, another continent, with no kind of local connection at all, are just buying up these clubs as investments. And I remember football clubs. When they were owned by local people, like a local businessman or something. And, and you know what I find so sad, uh, talking just across the water from where it happened, that Portsmouth Football Club got into this terrible financial mess that almost took it out of existence. And then the fans eventually bought it and got control of it. And, and so, yeah, the fans own the club. Fantastic. What are the fans of those that own the club for the fans? What do they then do? They sell out to a Disney billionaire who then kicks them off the board so they have no say. And this is such a a wonderful example of of the way, um, you know, people give their power away um, to to these um, these rich fans. Uh, mega rich people and, and and even watch them on the football pitch I mean 300,000 pounds a week for kicking a ball about it's grotesque actually it's almost beyond description how ridiculous it is
0: David that Wogan in uh, late 1991 sort of changed your life forever really didn't right. it Right. looking back um, it was a good move from your point of view wasn't it
1: well it wasn't a good move in the sense that it was calculated it just happened but it was the best thing ever happened to me because most people, if you look at them, someone upstairs banging, <laughs> putting the carpet in, are you? You know, I was just telling you, was not I? I love living here because it's so quiet. <laughs> it always is. We started this radio interview. And for the first time in living memory, someone's banging upstairs. Anyway, most people live in a prison called fear of what other people think. People are becoming more and more pressured to do that political correctness and and you can't have an opinion that someone else doesn't agree with the pressure to to not say what you think and not be you but whatever someone says you must be pressure has never been greater particularly on the young and uh when you look at most people they are in fear of what other people think They're, they're, they're 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 scanning their minds and thinking how do i put this so that you know these people won't think i'm crazy or or these people will think good of me and all that stuff and so most people at least openly in the way they interact with others they're not being themselves they're being the version of they think other people think they should be what happened to me with that immense uh historic level of ridicule uh, in the early 1990s it set me free set me free of that prison And um, anyone who's still in the prison, and it is most people if they're honest with themselves, I I can't tell you what a freedom it is when you really couldn't give a damn what other people think of you. doesn't mean you don't listen to people and and what have you, but in the end, you decide what you think and say, not anyone else. Uh, It's a freedom that's almost beyond description if you've not experienced it. And some of the stuff that I've come out with in my books and stuff since then, which has been from a... Norm point of view far out even though I back it up with enormous amounts of evidence You know, would I have come out with that stuff if I was still in it any concern about what people thought of me? I mean, I love it John when people people have said to me Didn't you know that people would laugh if you said that and I'm thinking <laughs> do you know, do you know, I'd worked that out do You know that <laughs> so it was a gift one of the things I said in my books You know life so often gives you your greatest gift brilliantly disguised as your worst nightmare And that was certainly true of me it's, it's been an incredible life for you hasn't it really
0: what you've done and, and
1: uh... well it's been many lifetimes really uh, it seems to be you know a bit of this and a bit of that a bit of the other not so much of the other john to be honest but <laughs> um when you put it all together from the perspective of where i am now it's all it's been like a seamless journey you know um, my football career um ended when i was uh, 20. Um, with rheumatoid arthritis, um, and that was a great emotional trauma because it had been my dream since I was a kid. What happens then is you feel sorry for yourself, which is the worst thing you can do because I remember my father saying to me when I was a kid, he said, you know, it doesn't matter what happens to you. It doesn't matter how bad it gets until you sit down in a chair and say, you're finished, you're never finished. I've always remembered that. I've had good reasons to remember it on occasions, but that gave me this sod it, you know, okay, one door shut, what's the other one? And I'd always been interested in journalism from when I was a, a real kid. I was always reading newspapers when I was quite young. And that was always my second string. And uh, so I, I became a journalist. That was a, an amazing series of coincidences because I'd left school at 15 and therefore I didn't have any uh, educational qualifications to become a journalist. But, you know, doors just opened. And being in journalism and radio and stuff, that gave me this background of, um, of Journalism how to write um, simply uh, And then I went into uh, television and that gave me some kind of profile and of course I learned a lot about television and Then um, I went into politics with the Green Party and that's another amazing story I start the Green Party on the Isle of Wight and within weeks. I'm a national spokesman for the Green Party. It was just bizarre um, And that allowed me to see politics on the inside and realize that politics is never going to change anything it's it's a block on on positive change not a vehicle for it and by the time i started doing the stuff i'm doing now plus the fact of the you know all the ridicule which cleared me of the fear of what other people think put all that lot together and it was almost the perfect preparation for what i'm doing now in so many so many ways you could never imagine that you'd be
0: going all over europe Talking for hour after hour. It's amazing. When you go to different countries, are you sort of accepted differently? Do, do you get sort of different receptions in different countries or?
1: Not from the audience. The audiences um, are all the same. They And by the way, the, the, the spectrum of society that is there is incredible. You're talking people from anything from 12, 13, 14 up to 80, 90 Every walk of life, every background, um, racial group. I mean, you know, it's just this massive cross-section of society. And someone said to me once when they looked out at the audience and saw the amazing diversity of it, they said, well, what on earth connects all these people? I said, one thing, an open mind. That's it. That's all you need. Everything else is irrelevant. But in terms of the media, yes. For instance, um, when I go to places like belgrade talking belgrade in serbia last time i spoke in belgrade i was on their main breakfast show live for 25 minutes being questioned on world events and how it all worked i then went the next day on the the second biggest breakfast show i go on current affairs program the um you know european equivalent of Newsnight. it is it is completely different it's in the english-speaking countries where it's pretty much the same I mean, I had a great set, too. You can see it on YouTube. I loved it. I had a great set, too, with two, um, two. Uh, well, I was going to say television presenters, but they wouldn't have been in my day, uh, on um, Channel 9's main breakfast show in, um, in Sydney, Australia. And uh, that was fun. But, of course, you know, my experience is that you, you find far greater maturity in journalism in Europe, particularly Eastern Europe. Than, than ever you do in the West.
0: Put that light out.
1: I'm trying to relax and
0: listen to John Hannam. What do you think of current television, then?
1: Well, again, because you know I've been around since 1952, I've seen so many changes as you have, and, and television's a classic. And I, in fact, I, I was I was in television when the big change took place. You know, during. What the fifties there was basically one television channel the BBC then ITV came along and so you were looking at programs Because of the nature of what was the choice that were absolutely enormous audiences and then BBC 2 came along um, and then Channel 4 and Then this explosion of channels came along And, and what has happened is television channels have been chasing a smaller and smaller Slice of the advertising uh, potential, and so that has driven so much television down into the realms of cheap and cheerful, because it's uh, you know it's the television equivalent of stack them high and get them out fast uh, in supermarkets, and I think uh, the um, the quality has has absolutely uh, gone down. I, I remember when there were still substantial interviews going on um, in television. Uh, Because I think radio is the best form of broadcast communication, not least because there's only a voice and therefore you've got one thing to concentrate on. And also radio does longer interviews. But in television, you know, during the, like, 60s and 70s, 70s when I first went into television, there's still substantial interviews. And then this whole thing came in from America called soundbite television, where everything had to be short and snappy and therefore had no substance. And if you look at a, a major news story today, The amount of time that's given on television news to cover it is so small that all you can do is just parrot the official version of everything that you've been given. You can't really question it, not even if you had the motivation to. Most of them don't. The whole substance is gone. But one good thing from it, one good thing from these um, multiple channels we have now uh, are things like the History Channel. I think that's brilliant. Um, They came here to this very room, actually, to interview me years and years ago. When everyone here is laughing oh, David Icke's mad. They did this documentary, which has been out so many times over the years now, on the history of secret societies. And uh, they interviewed me perfectly straight. The documentary was delivered perfectly straight. And they do some really good stuff. Um, I mean, if I broke down my recording uh, list of programmes on that television there, you'd see uh, loads of them from the History Channel. I think it's excellent. So there have been some good things. But... The mainstream has, has, has followed the the lowest common denominator to a very large extent. So,
0: do you not watch uh, many sort of series or anything like that? What about Bodyguard, the new big
1: hit? No, I don't. I don't. I don't watch mainstream television virtually at all. The, just I just watch things to see, you know, what what the mainstream is telling us we, we should believe. I watch RT, the Russian channel. I watch their news bulletin uh, once a day, five or six in the afternoon, because although. Of course, you've got to filter everything everything and they're coming from a Russia point of view They do question things that are happening in the West in a way that the mainstream Western media does not and so you can get some uh, uh, Some good information that way Uh, Otherwise, um, I, I still watch football as a bit of entertainment. I watch a lot of documentaries on these smaller channels. Some of them are excellent. I must just say,
0: a great thing happened for football three or four years ago when Leicester City won the Premiership.
1: (laughs) You coming from Leicester. Oh, God. I can not believe it. (laughs) I can not believe it. I first watched Leicester City uh, in the early 1960s when Gordon Banks was playing for them and still hadn't played for England. I remember the first one I saw was Leicester against Nottingham Forest. It would have been about 1962, something like that. And... uh, they had a season in 1963 funnily enough the big freeze when they finished fourth and they were top at one point and they were top because the groundsman had got this idea of putting fires in oil drums <laughs> all over the pitch because you remember the big freeze of 63 there was mm. virtually no football for months it was unbelievable but but he got leicester games on doing this 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 thing with the oil drums and uh and uh, they finished fourth. Uh, but, I mean, to, for them to win. And me and my son, Jamie, were in a bar in Carnarvon in Wales watching uh, Chelsea play Spurs. Because if Spurs didn't win, Leicester <laughs> won the Premiership. <laughs> and, uh, oh, we had a few that night. I me bet and Jay, you I'll did. tell you. It's because because um, Spurs went 2-0 up and, and, and I, I, was, um, I was spitting blood. And then Chelsea equalised and uh, Leicester won it. It was an amazing achievement. David, what do you do right away from
0: chatting and what, what sort of is your turn off when you want to get away from what you do?
1: Well, I, d- I don't really turn off John. I tell you for why. I love what I do. People say, you know, what do you do to relax? Well, I, I, I work. I'm, I'm, I love it because I have this insatiable desire to know what the hell is going on. Because what we're told is going on, even even what authorities, most of them, know what's going on, is a fraction of what is really going on. So I love it. And um, one of the things I do on the Isle of Wight is I'll go around and I'll sit in a cafe and have a cup of tea and then I'll go on to another cafe and have a cup of tea because... When I'm reading books, you know, you sit in a chair, you're reading a book where you've got to concentrate and, and the phone will ring and then you'll start nodding off. Well, you can't nod off in a cafe, can you? So I go out and I read my books. Um, and also, you know, I, so, so many beautiful places here. That's a bit of a switch off. But, but no, I love working because I don't see it as work. I think it's a joy. I, I, I'm in a very privileged position to absolutely love what I do. I mean, not many people can say that, unfortunately.
0: David, thanks for your time. I I love chatting to you because you speak honestly. You you don't mince your words, which is what life's all about, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah, open your mouth and say what you think. Um, This is why what is happening now, with with a clear, systematic destruction of freedom of speech, um, through internet algorithms and internet giants like Facebook and Google, happening with political correctness you know we're only going to overcome it if we still keep speaking our truth and don't get intimidated into silence and you know the the the, the day i go silent will be the day i leave this world and go to another one but not until lots
0: of luck with your forthcoming european tour lots of luck with the new book Lots of luck with the movie that's coming. Along. Right. You are busy, aren't you?
1: I am, yeah, I'm loving it. <laughs> and um, in a couple Just of Just shows you, if you keep going, if you keep going, the waters break and the clouds part. It will re- keep going.
0: Wishing you uh, continued success, really. Cheers, John. And uh, always great to catch up with you. Thank you. Pleasure. Hi, this is Dennis LeCourier, the voice of Dr. Hook, and you're listening
1: to John Hannah Meets on Isle of Wight Radio, because you have such good taste.
0: Well, Dennis took the lead on all those Dr. Hook classics. Sylvia's Mother, If Not You. A very appropriate song for David Icke. A little bit more, particularly when he's doing his 10-hour talks. And, of course, Sexy Eyes. Some ladies think... David Icke has sexy eyes. I never looked that close. Grateful thanks to David Icke for today's interview. I love chatting to him because... uh He's never lost for words, which is fantastic. And now some of his tour dates. These are in October, the 3rd in Oslo, the 6th in Stockholm, the 9th in Helsinki, the 12th in Copenhagen, the 19th in Budapest, the 27th a place in Poland, and it's spelt W-R-O-C-L-A-W. I've chickened out there. The 2nd of November, Vienna. The 9th, Amsterdam. The 12th, Glasgow. The 15th, Newcastle. The 19th, Swansea. The 23rd, Watford. The 26th, Torquay. The 30th, Colchester. And finally, December the 8th, in Margate wow he's going to be busy you've been listening to John Hannam Meets courtesy of Isle of Wight Radio don't forget to look at my website johnhannam.com for news of more interviews and how you might purchase my books thanks for listening bye bye for now